So if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to look at these verses together, and then we're going to pray, and then go right into our message this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verses 12 to 22. Uh, wasn't it great, by the way, having the youth lead us in worship? Yay. So my daughter was there, and my nephew was there. So, so we got part of the Chang family leading. So thank you, Samuel. Thank you, uh, Kristen. And thank you for Dylan as well, the whole team. So you guys did a great. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 22. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And do not put out the Spirit's fire, do not treat prophecies with contempt, Test everything, hold on to good, avoid every kind of evil. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the words that are written in Scripture. That they are written to instruct us, to guide us, so that we can be transformed by it. Lord, your word is revelation to us, and you reveal yourself to us. And as you reveal yourself, help us to see how this applies in the 21st century here in this church, that we can become what you have called us to be, a gospel community. The word gospel, Lord, simply means good news, and thank you that we can be the bearer of good news, not bad news. That we don't have to be people that are always being offended by the world around us, but instead we can be, in a good sense, be on the offensive, to make a difference in the world and in our communities, among our friends. So we pray you would guide us, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems like everyone is being offended by everything. You know, that little uh, sort of uh, video reminds us that just having uh, uh, social media, we could comment about everything that we have no expertise in. And that can work for us uh, as Christians, or it can work against us as well. And sometimes we as Christians can get easily offended by the world. But the flip side is this, that we can also be offensive to the world around us, to outsiders. When we as Christians respond in, in, in the same way that the world responds, in hostility and in anger, that oftentimes the message of the gospel gets lost in our emotion. So the world sees people as Christians as being really strange. Have you ever uh, been to a football game or seen a football game on, on television? And there's usually this guy with this hair that's, that's sort of a rainbow color hair. And he's holding up a sign that says John 3.16. And we as Christians sort of use that as a way to share the good news of Jesus. But the world sees us as not good news, but as somebody who's crazy. And so often we as Christians offend the world just by our strange behavior. Or others uh, of us who are Christians, sometimes we act almost like non-Christians. We attack all the issues around us in a way that, is, uh, that shuts the communication off. 
So instead of offending, let's think of a different strategy. What if the best strategy for presenting the gospel is not just necessarily our words, but it's also our action as a community? Maybe the best strategy for us to share the good news of Jesus is to live in such a way that we become an attraction to the gospel. So instead of being offensive people, let's be on the offensive. By that I mean, let's show the positive nature of the Christian faith. Now, some of you uh, who are uh, new to the faith, or maybe you're exploring Christianity, the question you're asking is this, how does Christianity, how does Jesus make a difference in my life and in the life of the community? Does going to church really matter? And a lot of Christians have the same perspective. Going to church on Sunday doesn't really matter. I could just stay home, click on a, a YouTube sermon. I could listen to a podcast. I could sing a song from one of the famous worship teams around the world. And that's church for me. But is that really church? Am I losing something by not being a part of this community that, that God has formed? Uh, in an article by Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin, she holds a PhD at Cambridge University in Renaissance literature. And she also has a theology degree from Oak Hill College in London. She makes a very compelling argument. She says this, that going to church does matter. And all social sciences, all empirical sciences uh, prove that fact. According to her research, a large number of empirical evidence shows that regular participation in church is good for individuals as well as good for society. In America, those who attend church, church weekly or more are 20 to 30% less likely to die over a 15 period. They suffer less depression, are less likely to commit suicide, and less likely to divorce. In other words, just by going to church, it reduces some of the social problems that we have in society. And not only that, did you know that going to church is correlated with good health? We all know the health benefits of exercising, uh, quitting smoking, eating more fruits and vegetables. But it turns out that the same health benefit, those things that I just mentioned, and going to church have the same correlation of good health. In other words, just by going to church on Sunday or just by going to uh, participate in a religious gathering, you're actually helping your physical well-being. And sometimes, living in a secular world, we hear the opposite, that religion poisons the mind, that religion is bad for society. And the reason that they hear that is because of all the things that may be sort of the misconceptions of what Christianity is. Did you know, one of the most positive things about Christianity is this, that Christianity is the most culturally and ethnically diverse belief system in the world today. There are almost every group of people in the world that hold to the Christian faith from every ethnic city. So if you think about it from a global perspective, Christianity is the only belief system that is able to bring the world together. The power of Jesus, whether you're in Asia or Africa or South America, North America, that the power of the church is, is an amazing, powerful community. And so here's the po apologetic that we have. That the best apologetic to the world, the best testimony to the world, is a healthy, gospel-centered Christ community. That we could together, 
as a church are to be salt and light. And we demonstrate to the world around us the power of the gospel by the way we live, by the way we treat each other. If you want to be a good evangelist, be part of a great church that we can display the good news of Jesus. You see, Christianity has impacted societies and generations throughout history. In the first century, when the gospel first gave birth, when Jesus died and resurrected, he commissioned his disciples to go into all the, na- uh, to all the nations. The apostle Paul took the message to a city called Thessalonica. It was a, 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 a Greek city, part of the larger Roman Empire. And it was a metropolitan city. It was a capital of that region of Macedonia. And the thing about the Thessalonians were this, that they were, many of them were, were Gentiles who had never heard of the gospel. But the question that was asked is this, what made a non-Jew, a Gentile, be attracted to the gospel? And one of the reasons I believe they were attracted to the gospel was because of the message of the gospel itself, that it really was good news. And for a, a Roman citizen... Living in the first century, life was pretty, pretty miserable because half of the people of all the Roman Empire were slaves. There were over 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And all the people basically were treated with oppression by the government. People were poor. People struggled. And so they were looking for life that was greater than what the government or society could offer. And when the good news came, it transformed the way people thought about one another. See, in the Roman society, people were, those who were handicapped, those who were disabled, those people who were elderly were thrown away. But, but this new community of Christ followers brought people in. They brought people who were sick, who were elderly, who were orphans, and created a new community. And for the first time, people felt a sense of value and worth. That's what the gospel did. And so in the first century, when Paul goes to Thessalonica, they hear this new message that we are created in the image of God, that God has a purpose for our life. It it, it was attractive to the Romans. And guess what happened? This church, this community began to form, this good news community called the gospel community, called the church. And the church began to grow. And as the church began to grow, persecution began to happen because the Roman government did not want competition. And so they started persecuting the church. They kicked Paul out. And so Paul writes this letter to this church. The very first letter that Paul writes is a letter to the Thessalonians. And he's writing this letter and he's encouraging them that no matter how difficult life is, that there is hope for a Christian because we have an eternal perspective. Now we are at the very last section. Next to the last section in Thessalonians. And it seems like when, when Paul is writing this letter, that it's just a list of things to do. Almost like a checklist. But I want to show you that there are three major categories that Paul is describing what a gospel community looks like. And I think if we want to show the world what true Christianity is, these are the three things that I think we can show the world that's different about the gospel community. So the first thing he mentions is this. By the way, the main point is this. When the world sees a correct portrait of gospel community, it attracts people to the reality of Jesus. When the world sees a correct portrait of a gospel community, it attracts people to the reality of Jesus. So let's look at the three points that I want to share with you. Number one is this, that the gospel community responds 
well to godly leadership. In verse 12 and 13, as Paul is closing out sort of the epilogue of the letter, he says, Now we ask you, brothers, we respect to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. The first thing that the Bible calls us to do as, as people of, of, of this new uh, community is that we are to treat one another with respect, especially those who are in leadership. Now, sometimes it seems a little self-serving as a pastor to say, respect me. That's not what we're saying here. Uh, of course, you should respect the pastors of the church. But we should also respect those who are doing other things in ministry as well. Our small group leaders, our ministry team leaders, our youth leaders, our uh, outreach team leaders, our women's ministry leaders, anybody in leadership position, here's the Christian mindset that we are always called to respect those who are above us. Because for us as Christians, if we do not respect, that it actually goes against the message of the gospel because the gospel calls us to humble ourselves and to lift up other people. And there are two aspects to respecting. One is that we need to acknowledge them. And secondly, we need to recognize, to appreciate them. You know, this past week, I received uh, an email from uh, one of our uh, elderly uh, ladies in our church who had been a Christian for a long time. And she was from the Anaheim campus, and she wrote me an email, and she said, Dear Pastor Ray, I just want you to know how thankful I am for you and how thankful I am for the pastors, and I've been praying for you. And I've, I've realized how important it is just to pray for you as, as a church. You know, one thing that is sort of understated at times is how important those words of encouragement are. Don't take for granted those who are serving in leadership. Instead, acknowledge them and, and, and respect them. But I think one of the reasons that it's so hard for us to respect those who are, who are above us is because that goes against sort of the counter. Uh, it goes against the culture, right? I mean, our culture, uh, according to this recent survey in 2017, it says that consumer confidence in established organizations as business, media, government have been slowly declining. In others, amongst the millennials, that they distrust almost everybody. Uh, two out of ten major, uh, in, major institutions, military and scientific, were the only ones that had positive support. Everyone else, 88% of millennials said uh, they never trust the press. 86%, they don't distrust Wall Street. Millennials are even dubious of the government saying 74% don't even trust the government. Now, the church was a little bit better. It's only 45% said they don't dis they, they distrust the church. But the thing that I think is important is this, that as part of our Christian life is we are to honor and respect those who are above us. So one of the first things that the Bible says in the Old Testament if you're a, a child, is to honor and respect your parents. And those who above us who are employees, we are to respect and honor our employers. So 1 Timothy 6.1 says, All who are under this yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of respect. Slaves were to respect their masters. Um, older men to be temperate, worthy of respect. Younger men were called to respect older men. Younger women were called to respect older women. In other words, respect is foundational. And I think as Christians, instead of being angry and disrespectful, 
that one of the best ways to demonstrate the good news of the gospel is to respect those who are above you. So here's a practical way you can respect them. If somebody's over you, you have a teacher, a youth leader, a parent, I want you to go and, and, and write them a little note and, or just say, I just want you to know I, I thank you for what you're doing. If everybody does that, you know what? It changes the whole mindset. It changes the whole uh, atmosphere of a community. Respect our leaders. The second thing that Paul says is that the gospel community reflects godly lifestyle. Godly, a gospel community reflects a godly lifestyle. Notice what he says in verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays wrong for wrong, but always be kind to one another, be joyful always. Now, if we had a checklist of what the Christian life looked like, this would be maybe four or five things that I think we could say to the world, this is the attitude or this is the action of people who follow Jesus. So what are they? The first thing he says is to work hard. In other words, admonish those who are idle, meaning those who are kind of lazy, who aren't doing anything. Uh, Paul speaks very harshly to them. Even in 2 Thessalonians, uh, he has a whole section on people who are just kind of taking advantage of other people. One of the things that the gospel calls us to do is to work hard. It's to work hard because our working hard demonstrate that God is the one who created all things, even our work. And that one of the first commands that God gave to mankind was to take care of work, the soil, toil, work hard because that honors God. Everything we do, when we work hard, we are actually glorifying God. So we see that in the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs talks about comparing Christians or talking about believers to ants. He says, go to the ant, you slugger, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provision in the summer and gathers its food for the harvest. How long will you lie there, O slugger? When will you get up from your sleep? A little slumber, a little sleep, a little folding of hands, and poverty will come upon you. In the Old Testament, there was a strong admonition to work hard. And I think as Christians, one of the things that is a good testimony is to work hard in whatever you do. Be the best employee you can be. Be the best student you can be. Not that you have to get straight A's, not that you have to always get bonuses, but work hard. Now, the other extreme of that is that we have two extremes. Right? We have those who are lazy, who don't do anything, and then those who work too much. And guess what? That extreme is also sin. Some people think, oh, all I need to do is work seven days a week. Well, I only need to go to church on Sunday. I just need to work seven days completely. And the Bible says that that in itself is sin. And the reason that's sin is it, it, it doesn't trust the provision of God. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In the Old Testament, there were, set, there were ten commands that God gave to the people. We call those the ten commandments. One of the commandments, the fourth commandment was God has created the Sabbath for us to rest. So six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. And the purpose of the Sabbath in the Old Testament was so that you can rest and you could worship. 
And also, it was meant to give you the dependence on trusting God's provision. Because if you work six days and you rest one day, that one day of rest is trusting that God is the provision. So those of us who are Christians who work seven days a week and no rest, we are actually sinning as much as those of us who are Christians who don't work at all. Now, there are some who can't work out of, out of disability and so forth. That's a different story. But we're talking about those who are able to work. If you don't work at all, and if you work too much, then I think those are the imbalances. So what God calls us to do is to work hard for the gospel because it displays to the world the reality of God. Notice what he says here. We urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle to share their testimony by working hard. Second thing he says is encourage well. Not only should we need to work uh, hard, we need to encourage well. One of the most important things, I think, as Christians, is we need to be people who are encouragement people. You know, isn't it easy not to encourage others? Isn't it easy just to, like, discourage people? But there was even a guy in the Bible, his name was Barnabas. You know what his name meant in the Greek, or in the Hebrew, actually? His name means, Barnabas means son of encouragement. It was so important that Barnabas was the one who discipled Paul. And his name really symbolizes for us the way in which we need to live our lives. And I think one of the times that Christians don't do enough of is encouraging one another. I want to encourage you to encourage. I want you to encourage your leaders. I want you to encourage your, your friends. And write notes because, you know, here's the thing. Even encouraging people who are outside of the family of faith because it's important that as Christians, we should be known for our encouragement more than our hostility and anger. There was a, a middle-aged pastor um, named William Steiger, and he was reflecting on his gratitude of a teacher that impacted him when he was uh, a young man, who introduced him to great literature and sparked his love of the written word and helped him prepare for his future vocation. Realizing he had never thanked his teacher how much she had touched his life, he decided to atone for his omission, and that very night he penned this letter, a handwritten letter of thanks. And just a few days later, he received the reply written in um, her own handwriting, and she said, the woman said this, Dear, my dear Willie, I am now an old lady in my 80s, living alone in a small room, cooking my own meals, lonely and seemingly like the last leaf of fall left behind. You would be interested to know, Willie, I had taught school for 50 years, and in all that time, Yours is the first note of appreciation I have ever received. It came on the blue, cold morning, and it cheered my lonely old heart as nothing has cheered me in many years. You know what you as Christians can do? Be the person of encouragement in your company. Be a person of encouragement to your leaders, to your friends. And I think sometimes as pastors, um, you know, Oftentimes, we get on the other side of that where people may complain to us about different things. And there's, there's nothing wrong with complaining. And there are times that we need to complain. But also, remember how important encouragement is. And so he says this, encourage the timid, especially those who are weak. 
And the third thing he says is interesting. He says, do not repay wrong for wrong. In other words, release retaliation. You know what human nature is? Human nature is when somebody does you wrong, you do wrong to them. If somebody uh, yells at you, you yell back at them. If somebody uh, uses vulgar language, cusses you out, you cuss back at them. That's human reaction, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But Paul says something different, that a gospel community, instead of retaliating wrong for wrong, we need to be patient. We need to forgive. And I think one of the things that's important for us is that if we are going to demonstrate the reality of Jesus, we have to show the world that we are a community that is not focused on bitterness, resentment, and retaliation, but instead we are a community that is focused upon forgiveness. If churches cannot be a place where we forgive each other, then how can we demonstrate to the world the forgiveness of Jesus? The reason the motivation for us to forgive one another has nothing to do with willpower. The reason that we can forgive is based solely upon God's forgiveness to us. That when Jesus died for us and God released the penalty of sin upon Jesus, he releases us from the bondage of our own sin. And because God forgives us, I can forgive you. And hopefully you can forgive me. Doesn't mean that our feelings don't get hurt. It doesn't mean that, 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 that we don't still have to work through the emotional aspect, but it does mean this. I'm not going to hold that against you. That we are a, a people of forgiveness. The next thing he says is this. Be kind to everyone. Be kind. Uh, no, L- notice what he says. It, it, just, it doesn't say just be kind. He says, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. You know, the hardest thing to do sometimes is to be kind. Now, I'm not talking about just kindness and kindness. Just, you know, for people that you like. I'm, I'm not talking about that. But it's really hard to be kind to people that you don't like. Or that people that don't like you. Now, how do you deal with somebody like Now, here's the thing in the gospel community. We as people of Christ are to be kind Always try, and I think Paul uses the word always try because he knows how hard it is. But when we demonstrate kindness, what we are demonstrating is the goodness and the grace of God. You know, sometimes non-believers are more kind than even believers. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of a comedian named uh, Patton Oswalt. Patton Oswalt is... um, Sort of a, a, a comedian, improv actor. He, and he is, uh, on, the, on the social side, very progressive, very anti-Republican, anti-Trump. And one day, he um, wrote a very sarcastic tweet against the president. And a, a, tr- a Trump supporter named Michael Beatty tweeted back in response, lobbying accusation and insults at Oswald. And out of curiosity, uh, they, start, they, they went back and forth. And this is how social media works. I attack, you attack me, and it just gets worse and worse. <laughs> and you fall down the slippery slope of, of this abyss of just being angry at each other. But Oswald, uh, or Patton Oswald did something very interesting. He actually went to the guy's timeline and started to scroll his timeline. And when he scrolled his timeline, he saw something interesting. That Michael Beatty was hurting in his own life, actually medically, 
And he was actually sick. And so Oswald tweeted the following admission. He goes, oh, man, this dude just attacked me on Twitter, and I joked back. And then I looked at his timeline, and he's in a lot of trouble health-wise. He's been dealing with some terrible things. Let's deal him with some good things. Click and donate, just like what I've done. He actually gave this guy who attacked him $3,000 for his medical bill. And he encouraged his followers to do likewise. And I thought about this. This guy on one political spectrum giving and donating to the other guy on the political spectrum. And this other guy was so convicted by this, he said this. To, he responds to Oswald. He says, you have humbled me to the point where I can barely compose my own words. You have caused me to pause and reflect on how harmful words from my mouth could result in such an outpouring. Two people who are not, I, I don't know in terms of their, uh, whether they follow Christ or not, but here's the point. We as Christians have to be kind people. Because God has demonstrated kindness to us by giving us the greatest gift when we least deserve it. And I think in in the world's eyes, they get convicted when people say something and we respond in a way they did not expect. Instead of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, they get something else. And so Jesus says, when somebody slaps you, turn the other cheek. When somebody steals your coat, give them your other when somebody asks you to walk one mile, walk two. Because that's the way Jesus lived his life for us. That he went above and beyond. He demonstrated his kindness in this. That while we were still sinners, he died for us. And the last thing, the last checklist is this. Be joyful always. I like how he ends that section. He says, be joyful always. Now, why does he say be joyful always? Well, I, I think for us... What should mark us as Christians is joy. And the reason that we can be joyful is because of what Jesus did for us. uh, What he does for us, right? That we are joyful and we rejoice. And so Paul says in another letter in the book of Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The number one attitude, the number one sort of mark of our demeanor should be one of joy. Are you joyful people? (laughs) Or are we miserable people? Are we joyful people or are we just angry people? Does joy reflect your life? Is that your calling card? Chuck Swindoll says this, that there's nothing more contagious than joy. Nothing is more infectious and obvious than genuine joy. An individual who is truly joyful cannot help but manifest it. Such people display a well-developed sense of humor, an optimistic outlook on life, and a lighthearted spirit. And then he asks the question, does joy permeate your life? And here's why we as Christians can be joyful. We can be joyful because no matter how difficult the circumstances may be in life, that God is ultimately sovereignly in control. And that even though the circumstances may be hard, the attitude that we have is trusting in God. So consider it pure joy, Paul says, uh, James says in James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many companies, the testing of your faith develops spiritual maturity. Are you joyful people? So, Imagine this new community 
of Christians who are now gathered in the name of Jesus. They're living this out, and Paul's encouraging them to continually shine their light to the community around them. But there's one last thing that a gospel community must do that sets itself apart. Not only in terms of the way it views its leaders, not only in terms of the way they live, but thirdly, in the way they revere God. So he says in the last uh, few verses, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to what is good. Avoid every kind of evil. The final thing we list here is this, that the gospel community that can transform the world is one that reveres and worships God, that makes God the supreme authority of everything. In other words, we as a gospel community elevate and extol the name of Jesus. That we are not here on Sundays so that we could sing a bunch of songs and go home. We are here primarily to worship and revere God. And you know how we revere God? Number one, by praying. Because when you pray, you are acknowledging that you do not control life. That God is the ultimate arbiter of life. And secondly, the second thing that happens is that we give thanks. That prayer and thanksgiving are linked together. And the reason I think those two things are linked together is when we pray, when we seek God, we recognize that we can be thankful Because the circumstances may not be what we're thankful for, but in the circumstance, God can work all things together for good. Notice what he says here in verse uh, 18. Give thanks in all circumstances. He doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. In other words, God is is not a God who's telling us, oh, thank God for your loss of job. Thank God for for, uh, your uncle having cancer. That's not what God is saying here. What God is saying is, in spite of losing your job, instead of failing that math test, instead of uh, getting, uh, finding out your loved one has uh, a terminal disease, all those things, of course, we're not going to be thankful for that. But what we can be thankful for is that in the midst of all that, that God is to be revered and God will work those things out for those who are loved and called by him. You know, sometimes as Christians, I forget that. I forget to be thankful. Instead of being thankful, I grumble. I complain. And I think that the more we are thankful, the more we are revering God. So what do you do before a meal? You give thanks. Because you are recognizing that God is the one who provides that meal for you. Yes, you went to the grocery store, bought it. Yes, you went on the stove and made it. But ultimately, God is the provider of everything you have. And when you give thanks, you are acknowledging God's supreme rule over your life. But there's a third thing he says that that we can revere God. He says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Have you ever been to a barbecue where there's fire going on? What do you do? To put out the fire, you put the cap onto the fire, right? Sort of like this. Because you you want to sort of squinch all the, the oxygen out of there, and so the fire dies out. And here's what Paul is saying. Do not let that happen to the Spirit of God. In other words, when the Spirit of God is working in our lives, don't quench it. In other words, listen to what God's Spirit has to say in us and be directed by it. And the number one way in which we quench God's Spirit is by disobeying what God has revealed to us. 
In other words, when God says go, go. When God says obey, obey. By disobeying the word of God, by disobeying God's commands, by disobeying the authority of God, what we are doing, we are quenching the Spirit's power in our lives. Because once the Spirit of God is active, two things happen. We discern what is good and we avoid what is evil. Notice what he says. Verse 21, test everything. Hold on to what is good. Avoid every kind of evil. When the Holy Spirit is resigning, is changing and transforming our thought life, guess what happens? We know what is good. We know what is bad. And we don't do what is bad. We do what is good. And so one of the best ways that we are revering God is by being here on Sundays. Now some of you might say, what does coming to church have to do with, with, with revering God? The answer, it has everything to do with revering God. Because God calls us, do not forsake the assembling together of brothers. Brethren, Some of you might say, well, I'm a Christian. I can listen to a podcast. I can hear a bunch of songs on the radio. Isn't that church? And the answer is no. And here's the thing that we forget. Coming to church on Sunday is not only for our benefit. Coming to church on Sunday is for the benefit of the glory of God and also for the community of God. By being here, we support one another. And there are times where you don't want to be here, but you force yourself to be here, and the Spirit of God does something miraculous. Remember a few weeks ago, uh, somebody in our church shared with me, and I went up to her and I said, oh, it's so good to see you here. And she goes, Pastor, I don't want to be here right now. I'm just going through a really difficult time this weekend. The first thing in my head said, you know what, I don't need to go to church on Sunday. I just want to stay home. But I forced myself to come to church. And so I said, well, I'm glad you're here. I hope God speaks to you and says something to you that you need to hear. A week later, I was up in the elevator, and she happened to be in the elevator. She said to me, Pastor Ray, I was so glad I came that Sunday. Because the Spirit of God did speak to me and reminded me of some things. And she was sharing with that. And I just thought, the power of that. Do not neglect the meeting together. Of fellow believers, because you're not here only for your benefit, you're for the benefit of others, but ultimately for the reverence of God. There was a, a recent survey of 2,000 people in Great Britain, and they asked the question, what does your perfect Sunday look like? Now, if I were to ask you that question, what does your perfect Sunday look like? This person, uh, the 2,000 Britons said this, they, were, they had a survey. This is what, a, what an ideal Sunday looks like. Waking up at 8.30, 8.30 a.m. to the smell of breakfast cooking. A cuddle. Three hours of television. A quarter of Brits thought that the ideal weekend started with a full English breakfast in bed. A third wanted to start their Sunday morning with a cup of tea or coffee before uh, going around the house for just wandering around the house for an hour. And a perfect roast is said to be served at 3.15 p.m., ideally with four people. Other things they included as a perfect Sunday, reading a book, listening to music, doing some gardening. One out of ten said spending time at a pub. Do you know one thing that wasn't listed there? You want to guess? Nobody said going to church on Sunday. And I just thought, wow, that's where Great Britain is. So often for us that Sunday becomes almost an obligation. 
rather than the joy of fellowshipping together as a community of, of believers, that we are called to be salt and light to our community. And by being a community here that's gathered in Brea, in the Civic Center, we are displaying to the world the glory of Jesus. Yes, there are times we don't want to be here. But we come because the God works in our hearts to transform us so that even if we don't want it, that the medicine that we take, that God's Spirit transforms us into becoming more like Him. And you know, it's the times that we don't want to be here. Sometimes God is doing the work. Or that Satan is whispering into our ears that God wants to do something. You're valuable. And I think as Christians, we revere God when we do that. The greatest testimony we have as a church is the testimony of this community. The greatest apologetic that we have is not an argument that we have with an unbelief. The greatest testimony that we have is to live our lives in such a way that the world sees us as people that are not strange, that are not offensive, but that are loving and kind and encouraging. There was a recent survey done. Uh, they asked the question, of young millennials, is evangelism good? 50% of evangelical millennials said evangelism is not necessary. It's actually bad. It's wrong. And I think the reason they're saying that is not that they're against evangelism per se, but because they have been taught that evangelism is about shoving the gospel down people's throat rather than displaying the gospel through our lives. And so I want to encourage you as one point of application. We're going to be closing our series in 1 Thessalonians next uh, Sunday. The month of April is an opportunity for us as a gospel community to become the good news in our community. We're going to be focusing on a new series on hope, rising hope, talking about Easter. I would like for you to do a couple of things. Number one is to pray. For somebody in your life that is outside of the community of faith, who are, we would consider outsiders, to pray for them. And then look for an opportunity to invite them to participate, whether it's on, for a youth group on Friday night or whether it's a small group event, whether it's a, uh, a Sunday's church event, whether it's Easter Sunday, whether it's Palm Sunday, whatever it is, look for an opportunity to invite somebody. Because if we're truly to be gospel people, that evangelism is not only right, it is essential for all of eternity. And so I want to encourage you that we as the good news community have the responsibility of shedding God's, sharing God's word. And so let's celebrate that instead of shying away from it. Let's pray.